Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, giving you even more specialized support than ever before. Like access to the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders ready to tackle anything from the most complex trading questions to a simple strategy gut check. Need assistance? No problem. Get 24-7 professional answers and live help and access support by phone, email, and in-platform chat. That's how Schwab is here for you, to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. You know, we've got the market, uh, again, as Greg was just reporting, up uh, 1.5%. So a pretty decent week here. The question is, for a lot of folks, uh, dead cat bounce, or is maybe this market trying to find and form some type of a bottom here? Let's check in with Scott Ladner, Chief Investment Officer of Horizon Investments. Uh, Scott, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, despite you being from UNC Chapel Hill, we decided to have you on. Hopefully, it'll go well. <laughs> what are you looking at, Scott? As you take a look at these last few days here, maybe the market trying to find a bottom here. How, how do you guys think about it? Yeah, I mean, we think this, this trading kind of, kind of reeks of, uh, like, hope. Um, so people people right. are hoping this is over. Um, it, you know, it, it is very technical in nature. It is not happening on, on a lot of volume. Um, you know, and, and look, markets don't go one direction forever, right? So it, it has been seven or eight weeks of just sort of uh, malaise and just kind of grinding lower. Um, this this does have a little bit of a, of a feel of, of a relief rally. But, I mean, unfortunately, it, it's, it's really tough to lose sight of the main point. And the main point is the Fed has told us they want tighter financial conditions. And, and uh, you know, that, that is – that is the way they're going to try to control inflation. They want tighter financial conditions to bring demand down. Um, and until or unless that changes, uh, you know, this, this is probably we're probably in a, in a sell rallies kind of mode. All right. Interesting. Um, you know, Matt Miller jumped out for some reason, left the studio. Something about doing a TV interview, but not to worry because Kriti Gupta saw the empty seat, jumped right in. Kriti, thanks for, so much for filling in here. Appreciate it. I'll take any opportunity to co-anchor nice. with Paul Sweeney. Um, and, and Scott, you should know, Paul gives everyone who's not Duke a hard time. Yes. And usually I'll come in and defend them. But <laughs> for you, I'm a UVA alum, so I'm going to take You're on your Paul. own. I mean, yeah, Scott. you're on your own. I'm going to take Paul's side on this one. Um, I have to ask about these recession odds that everyone's talking about. It's, an, it, it's, it's kind of wild to see, at least for me, that the market or the economy, I should say, it's not the same thing. I should point out the economy is growing at a 2% clip. And here we are talking about an outright recession. So essentially going from two to below zero in the span of a couple of quarters, maybe. Are those fears realistic? I mean, pretty. It's you know, a year ago we should probably say no. Um, but think of how fast everything has been happening cycle-wise. I mean, the, the last couple three years have really taught us anything is that economic cycles are just are ever more compressed. Things are happening like ever faster, um, and and so you know to think that we can't get like a recession like measured in months rather than a recession measured you know, measured in quarters or years, 
um, probably isn't totally crazy anymore just just because of how quickly everything is moving through the system and how quickly um, you know like not only policymakers but the market reacts uh, to, to you know to changes and things. So it's you know it's it's, it's 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 not really out of the realm to think that we that we might end up in a recession. We don't think it's going to be a very bad one if we, if we do. There's there's really no there's no excesses in the system to, to speak of. Or they've been they're, they're in the process of being ring, you know, wrung out. Uh, and there's really not, not not very much leverage in the system. So there's not you know, that's sort of the, the ingredients for a like a really nasty type of recession, but but kind of a, a garden variety earnings recession, industrial slowdown type of thing in the back half of the year. You know, but the market's starting to sniff that out, and we think that that makes some sense. So Scott, at um, at your shop, are you guys kind of trying to during this you know the sell off we've had year to date, trying to find safe havens, or do you just say, hey, we're going to take opportunities to buy companies that we like and maybe add to positions of, of core holdings. How do you guys try to navigate through what has been a very tough start to the year? Yeah, it, I mean, it has been a tough start to the year. And so we, we've got a few different strategies. But, you know, one of them is, is more of an algorithmic de-risking and re-risking strategy, and so that, that's sort of doing its own thing. But inside of sort of the core allocation portfolios, um, you know, how, how, how we're managing client money, and those is, is really trying to, trying to play some defense right now, trying to sort of, sort of like let, let the clock play out, you know, this is obviously it's tough to time anything perfectly, but but in terms of um, you know in terms of like where we're putting money, like we have been pretty defensive, we've been pretty U.S. based, we've been pretty value based, and like and we don't know those are not overweights that we've had uh, you know typically uh, a lot over the last five or six years, uh, at least especially on the value side. But we are we are just sort of trying to run out the clock a little bit. You know we think that time will end up healing the inflation problem, and time will end up healing some of the, some of this uh, some of this demand and supply imbalance problem. Uh, but there's no like really quick fix for it. And so, as so long as there's no really quick fix for it, we got got to sort of like play along and play and play some defense and, and sort of go in the boring staples types of types of the world, um, and 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 just you know hang out until there until we have a chance for the Fed and other central banks to be able to pivot. Um, and when that happens, we think that there'll be a chance for that to happen later later this year. Um, yeah, that'll be the time to really kind of go full you know go go full gangbusters again. But you know until then, uh, you know until basically. Inflation is a secondary concern, and growth is a primary concern. Uh, until that, until that has an opportunity to happen, we just got to play defense for a little bit. It's kind of boring, but that's that's how we're that's how we're working. We got about thirty seconds here. Let's talk about the volatility here. We're looking at a twenty-seven handle on the VIX. Is it going to go back above thirty-five? Let's say when we start to originally see the onset of the war in Ukraine. What's next when it comes to volatility? Yeah, I mean, in terms of the ball market, it, is, it has been pretty interesting. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm an old volatility trader, and it's, it's, um, you know, that what we, the, the dynamics we've seen in the option markets over the last, over the last couple of months, um, have been somewhat striking because we have not seen any of that panicky types of things, and I'm sure you guys are aware. Um, for, for that capitulation that everybody's looking for, um, you know, we, we probably do need to see the big spike. We do need to see some of that panic thing happening, but you know, unfortunately, there is a little bit of like. Like Heisenberg uncertainty principle types of things when we when we look at volatility markets. Like if you look at it too closely, it's like it'll never you'll never see it. Um, and so when right. everybody's looking for that for that thing, it's you know it makes it harder and harder to get actually. All right. Um, so that's you know that's what we're looking for. That's good stuff, Scott. Really appreciate you taking the time uh, sharing your thoughts, Scott Ladner, Chief Investment Officer, Horizon Investments for UNC grad. I think he did pretty well. Maybe we'll have him back. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, giving you even more specialized support than ever before. Like access to the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders ready to tackle anything from the most complex trading questions to a simple strategy gut check. Need assistance? No problem. 
Get 24-7 professional answers and live help and access support by phone, email, and in-platform chat. That's how Schwab is here for you, to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Big tech deal goes uh, formal today. Broadcom agreed to buy cloud computing company VMware for about $61 billion in one of the largest tech deals of all time, turning the chip maker into a bigger force in software. Let's get the strategy behind it. Let's get the numbers behind it with Wu Jin Ho, senior hardware analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, Wu, talk to us about Broadcom. Like what I know about Broadcom is this is a company that grows pretty much or in large part through acquisitions, and this is a big one, VMware. Talk to us about the strategy behind the deal. Sure. Hey, thanks for having me on, Paul. So, um, you know, uh, the CEO of Broadcom has been laying out this uh, uh, diversification strategy ever since it uh, made its CA acquisition in 2018. And, um, you know, it, it has essentially grown from a chip business back in 2018 to about 25% of, of its sales coming from software through CA as well as Symantec. Adding VMware just extends and grows its software exposure to about 50% of total sales. So it, it actually extends to where it wants to go directionally going over the long term. It kind of seems like this is coming into a broader trend of, of chip makers wanting to diversify. NVIDIA is another example, uh, looking going into you know graphics chips to, to diversify the different kinds of things they make. Is this something we can start to expect from the likes of advanced micro devices, for example, or Qualcomm? What's your take? Sure. So, so AMD has actually started to make that transition away from the CPU chip, and and um, uh, they've also made other other acquisitions like the the Xilinx deal that they've made uh, to to get away from just being a CPU, but also be a a data processor unit or a cloud computing uh, and, and storage processing uh, uh, unit. So we do expect to see these. Um, uh, silo chip companies to potentially extend and, and, and broaden out that footprint, especially given uh, how much uh, cash that they've generated over the past couple of years, given the, the strong cycle that they've enjoyed. Um, you know, Broadcom is somewhat unique, uh, um, in, in a sense, uh, different from uh, NVIDIA to some uh, degree, Kriti. And, and the reason is, is because I, I do think that um, the CEO is trying to look for ways to diversify its business away from a, a very cyclical uh, uh, chip business. And, and VMware does that. Yeah, I want to call out uh, Dina Bass and Leanna Baker from Bloomberg News. They reported on this deal back on May 21st. Um, and, you know, the stock... This is this offers a forty four percent premium to that date, you know, kind of before the Bloomberg news story came out. Is this an accretive deal? Is this dilutive? What's it going to do to Broadcom's earnings and all that kind of stuff? 
Yeah, that, that was fantastic reporting by, by uh, Bloomberg News on, on that. So, so uh, we, we did the deal math. Um, it seems to be earnings neutral uh, if, if you add the two companies together. Uh, there may be some, uh, uh, some, some cost energies that they can yield immediately. And um, you know, we think that it could be an EPS-accretive deal, especially given that it's a cash and stock deal. Uh, longer term, um, Broadcom expects to uh, have $8.5 billion in um, uh, EBITDA uh, for, uh, out of uh, uh, VMware. That's an additional $4 billion in EBITDA over the next three to five years. And it all fits within... Um, uh, Broadcom strategy. Now, now in terms of uh, the share and in terms of valuation, and I think this is where you're going at, Paul, you know, we, we ran the, the valuation math, and it's quite frankly, given how much this, uh, the software sector and, and technology valuations have dropped over the past month or so, the deal valuation isn't uh, um, stretched. I mean, we calculate it to be five times EV to sales, 20 times um, uh, 20 times on a forward PE basis, and that's consistent with larger, uh, broad uh, tech names. Yeah, that's kind of where I wanted to go, uh, Wooch, because it seems like you know a lot of folks, or not, well, not a lot of folks, but a couple of the tech folks that I chatted with just in the last month or so, kind of you mentioned kind of what you're saying is there could be some some bargains out there, given how much uh, some of these tech names have sold off. Do you anticipate seeing uh, some more M&A going forward? Well, uh, given where the valuations are, um, I, I think that the, the larger companies who are talking with smaller companies in the past uh, may start becoming a, a, a bit more active. Right now, now the question is: is that are, are they willing sellers now? And uh, given how much where the valuation has has come down, and if there's a concern that this is going to be uh, a, an extended period of lower valuations. Some of these CEOs who have held out for higher valuations may have to rethink the, uh, the strategy of either going alone or being under the umbrella of a large company. So there might be a mix of both uh, going forward, and there might be some increased deal activity, uh, especially given how much uh, valuations have uh, pulled back. I'd really like to talk about supply chains here because something, bringing it back to NVIDIA, uh, I know we're talking about Broadcom, but don't worry, I'll, I'll connect the dots. NVIDIA here in their earnings said that we see the demand, we know that we can grow, the, what's getting in our way is these uh, COVID lockdowns, the supply chain issues. We're not able to meet our capacity. Will Broadcom have the same issue? Um, well, Broadcom said on the call that they uh, they haven't uh, seen those issues. Um, uh, as a matter of fact, they reported earnings this, uh, uh, this morning, and essentially uh, they beat uh, uh, expectations, and uh, a lot of it has to do with... Um, uh, on the networking side, part of it has to do with that they're not uh, directly manufacturing the chips, and they're relying uh, a, a lot more on uh, TSMC to, to manufacture the chips for them. And they don't have the graphics; uh, they don't need the PCB boards or a broader supply chain to help um, to have a built-out kit, uh, for for instance. Now, ironically, VMware uh, missed consensus expectations by about three percent when they reported this morning, and they didn't give much detail on the call. But I suspect that it had to do with supply chain because their hardware providers could not provide the uh, the equipment needed to uh, load uh, VMware software. So you are seeing uh, the supply side affect other, other areas um, uh, in, in the uh, tech chain. You know, it's interesting, you know, with the zero COVID policy coming out of China, it I guess you could paint a bare case that this supply chain issue, particularly as it relates to chips and other things coming out of China, it ain't going away anytime soon, is it? Well, uh, Cisco addressed it on their call. Um, 
uh, a couple of weeks back. And essentially what they're saying is that, look, uh, uh, the, the shutdowns or the lockdowns may be lifted in, in June, but you have this whole backlog of suppliers who really want to get their, their products out the door, and you have this uh, this huge logistics problem going on, going past you, and even if it is um, uh, the, the, the shutdown being being lifted. So uh, I agree with you, Paul. This isn't going to end in, in the in the second quarter, nor are, are we going to see an easing of the pressure going into the third quarter. Um, some of the chip makers are already uh, pushing back uh, the supply chain easing going into the middle of 2023 now, uh, and I was calling for the middle of 2022. So. Um, yeah, it's 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 going to be tough times for the hard uh, hardware vendors, chip makers, as well as uh, the companies who are looking to buy um, uh, buy hardware as well. Yep, absolutely. Customers. Yeah, it's a supply chain issue that uh, is not going away anytime soon for large parts of the economy. And I'm thinking about the auto industry. You know, you think about all the chips that go in the auto industry, and if this is going to be an issue, um, have to see what those folks are saying. Wu Jin Ho, he's a senior hardware analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, one of the best on the street. We appreciate having access. Uh, to him and his analysis. Again, you can read all of his analysis and that of Bloomberg Intelligence. B.I. Go on the terminal. All right, let's talk crypto here, but I want to talk about it. You know, when we talk crypto, often we just kind of fall back and say, you know, Bitcoin, where is it trading? Well, it's trading off about 1.3% today, 29,400. It's kind of been in a fairly stable range down in that area, but I want to talk about just the broader topics of, of crypto. It's actually a, a fairly big topic of conversation in Davos, Switzerland, which just wrapped up today. Danielle Dixon, CEO and Executive uh, Director of the Stellar Development uh, Foundation joins us. Danielle, first, I'd love for you just to quickly tell us what the Stellar Development Foundation is. Great, yes, thank you for having me. The Stellar Development Foundation is a non-stock entity, a non-profit entity that's focused on the growth and development of the Stellar Foundation, uh, Stellar Network. Really, we're focused on creating equitable access to the global financial system using Stellar's blockchain technology. So what was the topic or how were people in Davos, how were they thinking about crypto as you had your conversations throughout the week? Yeah, it's really kind of fascinating this year. In Davos, uh, there were crypto companies and blockchain companies that filled the whole promenade, which is the areas outside of Congress. In Congress, I was on one panel um, and they didn't have very many actually crypto focused panels, but we, uh, I think they only had one crypto focused panel and the rest of them, they sort of layered crypto into remittances and whatnot. But there was a lot of discussion around sustainability, not surprisingly, because they focus a lot on proof of work and proof of stake uh, consensus mechanisms. Stellar's is a different mechanism. It's proof of agreement. So there's a different sustainability. We're actually very sustainable from the standpoint of the network. So there was a lot of focus there. Outside of uh, the Congress in the in the area, there was discussions just around regulation, uh, global sort of focusing on the global pieces of regulation and also in the US uh, and the need for us to be able to create some really strong stability because we've taken so many steps forward as an industry and we need to focus on sustainability, but as well, we need to focus on just continuing to uh, really highlight the use cases, the really good use cases, so that we can demonstrate to governments and regulators all over the world the value that blockchain brings to their region. I have to ask here, when we're talking about cryptocurrencies, let's put this into the perspective of it's not just the crypto players in the, uh, kind of competing in the space right now. You're actually looking at the ECB, the PBOC, looking at creating a digital yuan, a digital euro. Um, I think a digital dollar may be a little bit far away, but I have to ask, when you think about that from a regulatory standpoint and those actually backed by uh, these major central banks, what is the value or what is the appeal of cryptocurrencies? 
Well, so the, the fact of the matter is on Stellar, we focus a lot on stable coins and CBDCs are an asset that we would love to have because we focus on payments. And payments really, you want to use uh, a, a stable coin or a CBDC because it, it's gonna create trust and gonna create credibility when you're sending a payment. You wanna know that what you send is also what you're gonna receive on the other side or the person's gonna receive on the other side. So I actually think it's a really strong, uh, it's a strong message that governments see the value of this technology. If you issue a CBDC and it's available on lots of different chains, it creates this opportunity to be able to leverage these assets in a really positive way. It creates this sort of borderless economy of, uh, of scale for, for folks to be able to send and receive value all over the world. Danelle, give us, if you could, just kind of an overview of kind of where we are in the regulatory environment for the crypto space? What are some of the things that you're looking at, investors should be looking at, do you think? Yeah, so in the US, a lot of the focus right now, I think is gonna be on stable coins. Not surprisingly, what happened with Terra and Luna a couple of weeks ago really created more and more focus on this particular issue. We've been advocating for stable coin legislation for a while now. And again, this is important to us because we like to be able to have stable coins, which are just to get, get clarity from our standpoint, we see stable coins as those assets that are one-to-one -one backed with fiat. So currency, like stable currency, uh, and that you can hold those assets, that those assets are held in an account that is re they're reserved and they're held in an insured account so that you know that you're gonna be able to trust and, and have credibility with respect to the asset that you're sending. So I think we're gonna see at least in the US some regulation around stable coins so that it basically in, in the, what I just said in terms of having audits and reserves and making sure that they're, they're backed one-to-one -one and that there's a lot of transparency for the, the companies and the end users that are leveraging those assets so that they can feel good about them. Uh, so we've seen a lot of movement towards this. I think that we'll see something like this, if not by the end of this year, early next year. Uh, and then there's obviously going to be focus around uh, the, the right. trading pieces and what's happening in that market. All right, Danelle, thank you very much uh, for that overview. Uh, Danelle Dixon, CEO and Executive Director, the Stellar Development Foundation, kind of getting an overview of kind of where we are on some of the big, big macro issues uh, on the crypto space. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, giving you even more specialized support than ever before. Like access to the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders ready to tackle anything from the most complex trading questions to a simple strategy gut check. Need assistance? No problem. Get 24-7 professional answers and live help and access support by phone, email, and in-platform chat. That's how Schwab is here for you, to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Mika Kaufman, 
CEO and founder of Fiverr, joins us. Symbol on the New York Stock Exchange. You can punch into your Bloomberg terminal, FVRR. Mika, thanks so much for joining us here. For our audience, I'd love for you to just give us kind of the 30-second overview of what Fiverr is, what you guys are up to these days. Sure, thanks for having me. Uh, so essentially, Fiverr is a two-sided marketplace that connects any type of business with tremendous amount of freelancers in almost 600 different categories of digital services. So anything you can think from business formation, finding a name for your business, to developing software for your business or editing video, uh, writing content, or helping you run marketing campaign. Any type of talent could be found on the, on the platform, and the average time that it takes anyone who visits the site to actually place an order is 15 minutes. This is compared to the average time that it takes to find a freelancer elsewhere, which is about 30 days. Um, so th that's the uh, efficiency compression that uh, Fiverr is presenting. Uh, the company has been around since 2010, went uh, public three years ago, uh, and continues to grow very, very fast. So uh, I'm just wondering how um, how these freelancers compare to other, you know, gig economy workers. Um, for example, compared to like an Uber driver, um, do they have issues with fees? Do they have problems organizing? Is unionization a concern? Uh, not really, because we're talking about skilled labor. And the difference between um, Fiverr and other gig economy platforms is that on Fiverr, the freelancers actually get to name their own terms. They decide when they work, uh, how much they work, how much they charge for their work. So from that perspective, they have total freedom of deciding or, or setting up their destiny. But And then you take your cut from the business different. or from the freelancer? We actually take both. Um, we, we take some of it from the freelancer and some of it from the customer. So Mika, the, the pandemic must have altered your business or had a huge impact on your business as people were working from home. Maybe they lost their day job and now they're trying to find some gig type of thing. Talk to us about how your business kind of was impacted and maybe today continues to be impacted by kind of the change in the labor force. Sure. I think that what was interesting when we started the business in 2010, it was, it was a decade when freelancing uh, went from being something people did in between jobs to being a full-time uh, career decision and a lifestyle decision. So freelancing is very different right now. By 2030, by the end of this decade, freelancers are going to be 50% of the workforce, which is, a, which is a huge cohort. Now, obviously, throughout the years, we've been growing uh, very fast. In the pandemic, the pandemic has, in, in many ways, made the, the case for what we've been preaching for the past 10 years, which is there's tremendous amount of value in working with freelancers, even if it's remote, because you don't need control over people's time, all that companies care is output. And on that, they're super efficient. Beyond that, it's the fact that um, I think throughout the pandemic and now, as we're thinking about potential recession coming in, um, I think more companies are thinking about efficiency and are thinking about variable expenses versus fixed expenses. And this is what freelancing talent is giving you. It's giving you the option to scale up or down as needed. And I think that this is super powerful when, when companies are thinking about efficiency. So, Mika, I'm, I'm an old stock analyst. I'm looking at your chart here. IPO'd in mid-19 at $21 a share, peaked in 
February of 2021 at over $300 a share. Now today trades just below $40 a share. That looks like a Peloton chart. That looks like a Zoom chart. Was your stock one of those names that was just thrown on the list of this is a pandemic stock to own and then conversely coming out of the pandemic like much of the world is that perhaps that's not the trade? Is that kind of what's impacted your stock price? I think the, the market is a little bit is, is behaving a little bit like a pendulum. It's either overreacting or underreacting. Um, I, I think that what what we're seeing now is a little bit of a fear that maybe the pandemic was a one-time uh, boost to the business, and that would not last. Everything that we see from the fundamentals of the business show otherwise, which is fundamentals are extremely strong. Our cohort behavior of the customers is stronger than pre-pandemic. Uh, the available market is just growing. The online portion of freelancing is about 5%. Listen, it's like e-commerce 20 years ago. We haven't even started. So there's so much room to grow into it. If you take as an example, in the past 12 months, we've had 4.2 million active businesses on the platform. Half of them are in the U.S., which is 2.1 million. But that is 2.1 million out of more than 30 million SMBs available in the U.S. alone. So there's so much room to grow into that we don't have any concern about the ability to grow. I think the market is going to correct itself. It's just, just patient. We can't optimize for the, for the share of the price. We, we optimize for the performance of the, of the business. By the way, you have now, I, th- I think, about eight verticals, right? Including graphic design, including digital marketing. Obviously, writing code is a big deal. Um, do, you, do you see yourself growing into more traditional sectors or is it all about digital services? We focus on digital services because physical services face tremendous amount of friction um, and, and, and challenges. Uh, right now, I mean, when we took the company public three years ago, we've had about 300 categories. We now have about 600. So we're adding about 30 new categories every quarter. There's so much categories to grow into. Right. If you look at it, it's classical e-commerce. Amazon has about 30,000 different categories. We, 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 have, mm. we have room to grow into. All right, Mika, really, really fascinating stuff. Mika Kaufman, CEO and founder of the firm Fiverr, New York Stock Exchange symbol for your Bloomberg terminal, FVRR, publicly traded company there. Uh, really fascinating story, fascinating part of the market, uh, really catering to uh, the folks that are working from home, I guess. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.